Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Paul. And let's pray together as we uh, reflect on this wonderful psalm. Lord, in your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so we ask that you would send your spirit among us here this morning to lead us more fully into the joy of your presence. May these words enter and penetrate our souls, and that may they be the very cry of our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we launched a new sermon series exploring the Psalms and John Marsh kicked us off uh, by opening up the words of Psalm 1 as a bit of an introduction to the journey that lies ahead. Uh, Now, you'll be relieved to know we're not going to cover all 150 Psalms. We are, however, going to spend about 50 weeks on Psalm 119. (laughs) But that was a joke, by the way. Um, uh, But what I hope this series will do is a couple of things, three things especially. A, expose you to the breadth and the variety that there is in the Psalms. Whet your appetite to make reading and reflecting on them uh, an integral part of your daily rhythm of life with God. And thirdly, uh, probably most importantly of all, to actually help train us to be prayer practitioners, to actually pray to give us more of a language to enjoy a natural conversational relationship with God. People who are, so that we're people who are able to talk with him about anything, at any time, in any place, whether we're full of joy and want to sing from the mountaintops, whether we're in the deepest, darkest valley, and we want to scream and rant and rage. Because you'll find all of that in this book, and the hope is that over the, uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to cover that full range, including some of the stuff that is kind of X-rated, some of, the, uh, some of the stuff that we'd probably like to censor, 
So as we study these psalms together, let me just encourage us to, to bear three things in mind. First, these psalms are meant to teach us about God and what it means to be human, what it means to live life well. Psalm 1 invites us to meditate on God's instruction in the rest of the 149 psalms. Secondly, I know it's really obvious, but the psalms are poetry, not prose. Poetry and music have a way of speaking to us in a way that mere prose can't. In particular, it has a way of speaking to the heart, not just to the mind. The Psalms are meant to shape not only our thoughts, but also our feelings towards God. And third, the Psalms aren't just a human word to God. They are, but they're also God's word to us humans. God inspired these prayers in the past, which now become for us God's word to us in the present, so that we can speak back to him using these words. And so with all of that in mind, let's just dive straight into Psalm 16. And I have to say from the off, this is my favorite psalm. And in particular, I just want to take us, first of all, to the end of the psalm, verse 11. And I just want to share this in a few different translations to help us get the sense uh, of what, what, what it's saying. So this is the NIV, which is the church Bible we've just heard. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Uh, now listen to it from the ESV, the extra sound version. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or how about this from the, the New Living Translation? You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. And so the question I want to ask us all this morning is simply this. How full is your joy? If it was an icon on a phone, how full would you say your joy is. Is it fully charged? Just straight out of the plug? 100%? Is it perhaps for some of us low power mode, essential operations only? I suspect for many of us it's probably somewhere in the middle. Perhaps not in the red, but maybe not too far off. Suspect not many of us here are currently experiencing the fullness of joy. So to borrow the, the words of Psalm 23, which we're going to explore next week, there's something in the cup, but it's certainly not overflowing. Now, I don't... I, I, I just have this conviction that there are too many Christians going around with itty-bitty joy. I don't think God wants us to have itty-bitty joy. David says there's a fullness of joy to be found in God. Fullness. Not a little splash at the bottom of a cup. Not half full. 
Not 90% full, not even 99.9% full. Fullness of joy. In your presence is the fullness of joy. That's what's being held out in Psalm 16. And so my my follow-up question this morning is, if you're not currently one of those people that's got the you know, the green uh, battery icon this morning. Do you want that? Oh, dear. Okay. Spirit, help me. Um, And if you do want it, where is it to be found? That's what this psalm is all about. That's why I love it so much. This psalm is itself the way that God makes known to us the path of life, the way to the life that really is life, life in all its glorious fullness. And so let me just get you to do a little bit of work, first of all. So let's look at verse 11 again. I'll read it for us, and then I'm going to ask you a question. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So the question is, where is full and forever joy to be found? In God's presence. Well done. Full and lasting joy is to be found in God's presence. Where God is, joy is. A theologian, Brian McLaren, writes, to enter or awaken to God's presence is to enjoy a bracing jolt of invigorating delight. The scandalous truth known by mystics throughout history and affirmed in the pages of our own sacred texts is that when we connect with God, it is as if we are plugging our souls into a pure current of high-voltage joy. Wow. I want to be electrocuted like that. Do you want to be full of joy? Do you want to experience not just that itty-bitty joy, but the fullness of joy? Do you want not just a few dregs in the bottom of a cup, but a cup that overflows? If you do, then press into the presence of God. Make it your aim to have your heart happy in him. Because when God is our joy, our joy is complete. Now the Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible, and as such, they give us a language for our own prayers. And one of the most important things I hope that we'll see by the end of our time this morning, uh, looking at Psalm 16, is that prayer isn't mainly about getting stuff from God. It's about getting God. Prayer is, at its heart, a pursuit of the presence of God. Why do we pray? We pray because in his presence is the fullness of joy. And so what I want to do for the rest of um, this talk is just walk line by line through this glorious psalm, seeing how David savoured all that God was to him, and therefore learning from David all that God can be for us who believe today. And so my prayer is just that God, by his Spirit, makes known to us the path of life that leads to his door. Verse 1. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. In other words, I'm safe with you. 
Who is God to David? Well, first of all, God is his refuge, his sanctuary, his shelter, his hiding place. He is David's harbor amid the storms of life. David saying, God, I'm running to you for dear life. The, the great reformer of the medieval church, Martin Luther, once wrote, that upon which you set your heart and put your trust is properly your God. In other words, it's not just what we say with our lips. Whatever you look to for your sense of security in life, that is your God. For many people, it's money. If I have enough, I'll be okay. And therefore, if we want to know the real God of our hearts, the indicator isn't what we say when we come to church on a Sunday morning, but it's where we run in times of trouble. Where do you run in times of trouble? David runs to God. In fact, that's what Psalm 16 is. It's David running to God. It's right there in the very first words. Keep me safe, my God. Preserve me, O God. The literal meaning of the Hebrew is have charge over me. Protect me. Guard me. Watch over me. Take care of me. Thus, we see something else about who God is for David in these words, and that's this. God is the one who listens. David cries out, keep me safe, my God, in anticipation of being heard. God isn't the ultimate cosmic vagueness. He isn't some impersonal force like in Star Wars. He is a personal divine being whose ears are open to us when we cry for help. There is fullness of joy in God's presence when we let, us, let him be our safe place, turning to him above all other ways of being safe. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Now, I know this verse sounds a bit strange to our ears because there's a convention in most of our English Bibles of substituting the word Lord in small capital letters wherever the Hebrew has the divine name Yahweh. And so to get the sense of what David's saying, let me just say it again but with, with, with God's re, the name that God revealed himself to Moses uh, and in the scriptures by. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. And hopefully now we can begin to see a little bit more about what he means. Namely that out of all of the possible gods out there, and there are lots, and I don't just mean uh, the gods that we call gods, but the gods that act as gods, even if they're not necessarily called that by anyone else, money, sex, power, all those things. What he's saying is, out of all the possible gods, Yahweh is my God. He is my master, my leader, my sovereign, my king, my ruler. He doesn't just passively acquiesce to God's reign over his life. He positively embraces it. I want you to rule me, to direct me, to govern me. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Why? Because apart from you, I have no good thing. 
In other words, with you, I have everything. Without you, I've got nothing. Everything good and holy in life comes from God. There is no good thing above him. There is no good thing apart from him. God is our highest, our ultimate good. God gives us lots of good things to enjoy in life. But what makes them so good is that they come from God and they're meant to lead us towards God. Part of our church mission statement is that we exist to be and to make disciples who love Jesus as their greatest treasure. That's what David's saying here. There's nothing better than God. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 11, verse 36, he says, From him and through him and to him are all things. To have God is to have all things. Now, before we move on to the next verse, let me just make one more observation. And the, uh, the one that David calls Lord is Yahweh. Now, the word God can and often does mean different things to different people. And, you know, lots of people might say, I believe in God. But actually, the best follow-up question is, which God? For some people, God is just this inexpressible feeling. For God... Uh, for others, God is the, the divine clockmaker who sets the universe in motion, then steps back and retreats to a safe distance so that we don't have to get involved with one another. To others, God is a, a, just a projection of their own deepest wishes and desires. But the God whom David calls his Lord is none of those. Yahweh is his Lord. A God who has revealed himself in a certain way at a certain time to a certain group of people. There is fullness of joy in God's presence because in the words of Robert Jensen, the theologian, he is the God who raised Jesus from the dead having before raised Israel from Egypt. It's a particular God we're praying to. Not just any old God. Verse 3. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Uh, the ESV translates holy people as saints, and that's, that's right. That's what the Hebrew kedushim means. But don't think saints in the sense of St. Francis, St. Clair, St. Mary Magdalene, St. Teresa of Avila. Um, it's not just a, meant to be a prefix for kind of spiritual superheroes. What, what the psalmist means, what's the, what the Bible means when it talks about saints are... The same as what Paul means in, in 1 Corinthians, the beginning of 1 Corinthians, when he says uh, that uh, he addresses his letter uh, to the church to those who are called to be saints. In other words, uh, to those who have been set apart by God and set apart for God. Good morning, saints. And so here's my paraphrase of verse 3. I love your people. I love those who love you. My heart thrills at the sight of a people sold out for you. Why? Because through them, David sees more of God. Godly people delight David because they remind him of the one who is his greatest delight. 
Now, um, as we've already said this morning, I'm a, I'm a bookworm. One of the uh, kinds of books I love reading are Christian biographies. But I love it. love reading Christian biographies for, for this reason, because they inspire me and overjoy me to read the stories of saints who are as flawed as I am, and yet who are all in for Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, James Hudson Taylor, St. Francis of Assisi, Jackie Pullinger, Charles Spurgeon, Brother Andrew, George Mueller, Corey Ten Boom, the Wesley brothers, John and Charles. They're just some of the saints in whom I delight. I hope you have some holy heroes. If you don't, I'd really strongly encourage you to find some. Through the lives of the saints, and like I said, I don't mean the spiritual superhero with the cape kind, we glimpse what incredible things God can do in and through ordinary people who are surrendered to him. The real lives of radically God-centered people are themselves theology. Through the godly, we see more of God. Verse 4. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. So now David takes verse 3 and he flips it. If the godly are his delight, then the godless are his dismay. If God is the source of all goodness, as verse 2 says that he is, then it's plain madness to go shopping around for another god. If God is the ever-flowing, all-satisfying fountain of living water, you'd be an idiot to dig your own cistern. Yeah, anyone who's read the Bible knows that that's the history of God's people. And not just in the past either. We've got a good habit of doing it today as well. Having tasted the goodness of God, David sees through the empty promises of the idols around him. They may look very shiny and attractive, but in truth, they're like salt on a thirsty tongue. Not only will they not satisfy, they will actually increase your dissatisfaction. In effect, David's saying, I've got eyes only for you, God. God is to him his first, his last, his everything. He will accept no imitation. It is God and only God. And that's exactly what he goes on to say in verse 5. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. Did you catch that little word? Alone? You alone? are my portion and my cup. He isn't hedging his bets. He hasn't got half his hope invested in God and the other half invested in a hedge fund. He is all in, sold out 100% for God. If there's a table full of sweet treats and cakes, he's taking the God slice. If there's a selection of fine wines, he's taking the God cup. Here's the way that Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. He says, my choice is you, God, first and only. What David is saying is that every time he has to choose, he's going to choose God. 
Why? Because God is his greatest treasure. Why go out for burgers when you've got steak at home? If nothing satisfies the way God satisfies, then why seek satisfaction elsewhere? The cry of David's heart is, be my everything. But notice the second half of the verse. You make my lot secure. What does that mean? Well, literally, it means you hold my lot. In other words, think dice. That is, my life is in your hands. There is fullness of joy in God's presence because in God's presence, we know that we are held. Think of the wonderful words of Romans 8, 28. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. What a glorious reality that is. If I love God, if I am called according to his purpose, anything that happens in my life, even the very worst things that can happen in my life, can, in the end, only serve to bring about my everlasting good. It's good for us to have our lives in the hands of a good God. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Literally, the first half of the verse reads, the lines have fallen for me in pleasures. It's the same word he uses later on in verse 11. What's he saying? He's saying he's he's building on the previous verse, and he's saying, I have this incredible home. The real estate that belongs to me is built on pleasures because it's God. And I think that David's echoing words that were spoken about the tribe of Levi, the division of the land. You see, when when God's people were coming out of Egypt, through the desert, into the promised land, the land was parceled out among all the tribes of Israel. Do you know the only tribe that didn't get any land? the tribe of Levi. Why? Deuteronomy 18, verse 2. They shall have no inheritance among their fellow Israelites. The Lord is their inheritance. It's not a bad inheritance. I could go for for that. And so David's saying, I'm like a priest. I've got God. Because God is my beautiful home, I've struck gold. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. Who is God to David? He is his counselor, his teacher, his confidant. Not only is God his his hiding place, his master and his greatest treasure, he's all of those things because he instructs and guides and advises and disciplines and corrects. We're not left to grope in the dark to find our soul's refuge in God. You make, my, you make known to me the path of life, David says in verse 11. Chiefly, of course, he does this in Jesus. God comes to us so that we might come to him. God's word, his, his written word, his spoken word, his living word guides us home to him. There is fullness of joy in God's presence when we listen to him. Think of that, that, that moment in the Gospels when Jesus takes Peter and James and John up the mountain 
a mountain of transfiguration, and he's transformed in their sight, dazzling white, and a voice comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Do you want joy? Listen to Jesus. God will lead you to himself. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And we begin to experience full and lasting joy when we continually set God before us. So the, the Singaporean writer, Hui Hui Tan, says, The profound truth is, you are what your mind looks at. You are what you contemplate. American poet Mary Oliver puts it this way, attention is the beginning of devotion. So if you want to enter into the fullness of joy that there is in God, then yes, we need to listen to him, but we also need to spend time looking at him. And some of you are kind of the literalist in the room and you're thinking, well, how can we look at God? We gaze upon his beauty in the word, in prayer, and let's notice that action is, is required on our part. David says, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. There is work for us to do. But what a wonderful work. Your work, my work, look at Jesus. It's a conscious choice that we must make to keep drawing our hearts and minds back to God. Now, it wouldn't be a Steve Harvey sermon if I didn't quote Dallas Willard. So um, I've, I've said this before, but it just speaks so much into this. He says, the first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. But these are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps towards, this should remind you of the verse we've just read, keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead nor will you let your faithful one see decay. Pay attention whenever you see the word therefore. Because as my lecturers love telling me, it's there for a reason. It builds on what's gone before. So David is effectively saying, in light of who God is, as my safest place, my highest good, my gracious master, my greatest treasure, my beautiful home, and my wonderful counselor, I have a happy heart. If God's all those things to me, I'm as happy as Larry. What is the path to full and lasting joy? Contemplating 
and glorying in all that God is for us in Jesus. The joy of verse 9 is the fruit of David's meditation on the character of God in the last eight verses. There's something very instructive in that for us, I think. If you want joy, then the answer isn't to look down and in, to look up and out to God. When you know God as your safest place, your highest good, your gracious master, your greatest treasure, your beautiful home and your wonderful counselor, you'll experience David's joy too. (coughs) Excuse me. The measure of our joy is based on the measure of our knowledge of God. Uh, The great man of faith and um, lover of orphans, George Muller, put it this way. He said, the more we know of God, the happier we are. When we become a little acquainted with God, our true happiness commenced. And the more we became acquainted with him, the more truly happy we become. What will make us so exceedingly happy in heaven? It will be the fuller knowledge of God. So here's a spoiler alert for you. That's why the goal is fullness of joy. Because it's an experience of the fullness of God. Why is David's heart happy? Why does his tongue rejoice? Why does his body rest secure? Because death won't be the end of his relationship with God. You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. This is the safety that he cried out for in verse 1. Keep me safe, my God. And David saw prophetically through the Spirit the safety that Jesus brought to fulfillment through his life and death and resurrection. This is what Jesus himself spoke of in John's Gospel. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And Jesus secures this unbroken fellowship with God through his own resurrection so that on the day of Pentecost, when the crowds are wondering what on earth is going on, Peter reaches for this part of Psalm 16 and says, death is defeated because Jesus doesn't see decay. John Piper says that the gospel is the good news that God bought for us the everlasting enjoyment of God. For those who put their trust in Jesus, death isn't the end of that relationship with God. And so the message I'm bringing you today isn't that God will keep you safe from death. I'm afraid there is still a 100% mortality rate. But he will keep you safe through death. It isn't that God will make you healthy, wealthy, and wise so that you can be happy, but that he will be your happiness so that you don't need to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. I have an icon in my study of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my holy heroes. Um, I know I've mentioned him several times before. He was uh, killed by the Nazis for his resistance um, to them. And I love this picture. I love this picture because of how free he looks. He seems so joyful, so content, so peaceful. And yet, where is he? He's in a prison cell. 
And that's not a contradiction. That, I believe, is a picture of a soul whose happiness is in God. And so at last we scale the summit of this majestic mountain that is Psalm 16. You make known to me the path of life. You'll fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. What is full and forever joy? To know all that God is for you in Jesus as your hiding place as your highest good, as your gracious master, as your greatest treasure, as your beautiful home, as your wonderful counselor, and as your death-defeating king. And the main point of this psalm is both to express David's own desire for God and to stir it up in us as well. David intends this psalm to be a kind of treasure map. Where does X mark the spot? In the presence of God. Where does the path of life lead? To God's door. Where are eternal pleasures? At God's right hand. This psalm is an encouragement to us to seek that pure, high voltage joy in God. The ultimate good of, going, uh, of, of the gospel isn't forgiveness. It isn't going to heaven, because what makes heaven heaven is God. Joy is the mark of a people who know God. Uh, Now, I'm not very good at French, um, so I don't quite know how to pronounce this guy's name right. Uh, I know that Danny will probably know, uh, but uh, I'm going to say Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, and we'll go for that. But he said, joy is the infallible sign of the presence of God. And that's why the first of our seven values as a church is that we want to be a church that worships joyfully. Now, I've, I've heard it said before, I don't know if it's true, but I, I want to think that it's true, that in the process of the Catholic Church's um, making somebody a saint, the, the committee that looks into it demands proof of joy in the candidate. I love that idea. I love the idea that dourness is not close to godliness. Eugene Peterson is spot on when he says, joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship, it's a consequence. And that's the point of Psalm 16, knowing God and all that he is for us in Jesus is the best thing in life bringing more joy, more delight, more contentment than anything else. The saints in the biblical sense of that word throughout the ages have found this to be true. St. Augustine, for instance, explains that what drew him out of years of self-indulgent rebellion was joy. He said, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood. You who outshine all light, yet are deeper, hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in 
in themselves. Oh Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. That's the prayer of someone that knows Psalm 16. And notice, this is really important, I think, for the way that we, we share the gospel and the way that we, um, we, we, we evangelize and make Jesus known. Notice what he says. He says, the way to cast out a lesser joy is with a better joy. That's the gospel. We have a better joy for you. The ultimate joy in Jesus. Uh, so I just want to come back to the beginning as I land the plane. Don't worry, I am landing the plane. Does anyone here want full and forever joy? It's more people than at the beginning. Praise the Lord. <laughs> so if you do, go after God with everything that you've got. To know him is to know joy. And to know him fully is to know the fullness of joy. Jonathan Edwards, uh, one of the leaders of the Great Awakening, said the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. Therefore, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey towards heaven, as it, is, as it becomes us to make the seeking of our highest end and proper good the whole work of our lives, to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and our true happiness? Why waste our time with anything, with itty-bitty joy, when you can have fullness of joy? ludicrous and so what is Christian joy Psalm 16 tells us it's to revel in all that God is for you in Jesus that's Christian joy when you revel in him as the safety of your soul the source of all your good, the sovereign who rules your life, the prize of your heart, the teacher who leads you into all truth the lover from whom death can never part us, then you'll know joy. Joy comes from knowing God, and the better we know him, the more joy we will have. And again, I know George Muller, one of my holy heroes, I mentioned him before. When I read this, it cut me to the heart, and it has changed the way that I approach every day. He says... He saw that the first and great and primary business to which I ought to attend to every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how the inner life might be nourished. So I just want to commend that to us. What might it look like for, for all of us to make our first task in the day to have our souls happy in the Lord? Now, you might be, expect me to say that the purpose of life isn't the pursuit of your own happiness, but actually, I'm not going to say that. I want you to pursue your happiness in God, He's your happiness. 
I'm saying quit looking to relationships or money or career. Or yes, this can happen, even ministry. And look instead to the only being in the universe who is able to give you full and forever joy. I'm saying with the framers of the Westminster Catechism that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I'm saying with uh, God is your true joy, so go after him with all your God. I'm saying with St. Augustine, know God, whom to know is to live, whom to serve is to reign, and whom to praise is the health and joy of the soul. And yet, I think the fact is that some of us are just too in love with this world and the things of this world. We love money and sex and comfort and television more than we love God. God offers us infinite joy in his presence, but we treat pursuing that presence as a pastime, as a kind of holy hobby, instead of an all-embracing, all-encompassing passion to be happy in him. St. Augustine said, the whole life of a good Christian is a holy desire. This psalm is all about a holy desire. And so the key to Christian living is an insatiable appetite for God, such that you go after him with all that you've got. So let me return to the question with which I began. How full is your joy? Let me put it to you that the fullness of our joy is related to the pursuit of our joy in God. And let me encourage you, as I encourage myself, pursue your happiness in God. So we're going to, as we kind of draw, draw, to a, draw to a close, can I invite us to stand as we respond? We're going to sing in a moment. And I just want to invite the Holy Spirit to come and to, to work in our, in our midst. And you, you might just want to put your hands out in front of you just as a sign of, of being ready to receive all that God wants to give you. There's nothing magical or special about it. It's just a, a posture of, of openness. So come, Holy Spirit. Stir in us a longing for, for God, for all that he is for us in Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Giving us true repentance for the ways that we have amused ourselves in, in, in lesser joys than in, than in Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit, set a fire burning inside of us that will not be satisfied by anything other than Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you come, move in us that we might know God as our safest refuge, our best treasure, our gracious master, our trusted counselor, and our death-defeating king.
Come, Holy Spirit. So in a moment, we're going to, we're going to sing. And again, this might be a, a, a new song to, to, to some, in which case, just invite you just to, to, to listen to the words, to reflect on the words, to make them um, a prayer for you. And, and if, you, if you pick it up, feel free to join in, and then we'll finish with a, a song that I'm confident that, uh, that most of you will know. But let's just invite, continue to invite the Holy Spirit here among us. It is the Spirit who brings joy. And so, as well as, uh, as, as Helen said, if there's anyone who, who, who would appreciate prayer, uh, please do come, and, and, and prayer team would be really delighted to pray alongside you. And if there's anyone here this morning who just, frankly, knows that their cup is low on joy and wants to be baptized afresh with the Holy Spirit, we would love to come alongside you and pray for that fresh baptism in the Spirit. So let's stand, let's worship God together. And if you'd appreciate prayer, just come and we'd love to pray with you.